H.R. McMaster, author and warrior, whose last job before retiring from the Army was director of the National Security Council in the Trump White House, and his friend Janan Musazai, an Afghan diplomat. The General and the Ambassador, on Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Born in Philadelphia, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster graduated from West Point in 1984 and later earned a doctorate in American history from the University of North Carolina. His doctoral thesis was published as Dereliction of Duty, Johnson, McNamara, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Lies that Led to Vietnam. General McMaster served in the Gulf War, Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, and Operation Iraqi Freedom. From February 2017 until this past April, General McMaster served as National Security Advisor to President Trump. A friend of General McMaster, Ambassador Janan Musazai of Afghanistan, attended Kabul Medical University and Carleton University in Ottawa. After several years as a producer for the BBC, he joined the Afghan Diplomatic Service. Ambassador Musazai served as spokesman for the Afghan Ministry of Foreign Affairs, as ambassador to Pakistan, and most recently, as ambassador to China. As of about a month ago, he has taken leave from the Afghan government and gone into the private sector. HR and Janan, welcome. After the terrorist attacks of 9-11, President George W. Bush decided to retaliate against the Taliban government of Afghanistan. The United States invaded Afghanistan on October 7, 2001. Some 14,000 American troops remain in Afghanistan to this day, more than 17 years later. HR, summary statement. We'll get to details, but a summary statement. Why are we still there? Well, we're still there because we have to be there to, to secure our vital interests. You mentioned the, the mass murder attacks on September 11, 2001. We ought not to forget that the reason that this transnational terrorist organization, this enemy of all civilized people, was able to carry out such a sophisticated attack that murdered so many Americans and took so many trillions of dollars out of the American economy is because they had be give, been given a, a safe haven and support base that allowed them to organize, plan, resource, generate revenue for and apply that revenue to that sort of an attack. And so it's, it's very important that these terrorist organizations not have that opportunity. There are over 20 designated terrorist organizations in that particular region. Designated by us, by the United States government. Designated by the United States, okay. bet between Afghanistan and, and Pakistan. It involves Al-Qaeda, uh, but other, other groups that are a grave danger, again, to, to really all civilized people, including, including ISIS Khorasan, for, exa for example. And so it, our vital interests are at stake there. But I would also say that there have been some tremendous achievements. So I'll ask Janan maybe to, to, to talk about this because you know, really, you know, it's important not just to conduct a successful military operation and then just leave, you know, what you might call the, the George Costanza approach to war and just leave on a high note. You have to be able to consolidate those gains to get to a sustainable political outcome that addresses what brought you into that war to begin with. And so 14,000 troops is really, if you think about it, a very small number of troops compared to other operations that have been conducted that required a period of consolidation. 
I believe, you'll know the number better than I, but I believe the number of troops we still have in Germany 70 years later is 30,000. It's o over 30,000. So it's more than twice as many as in Afghanistan. It, it fluctuates up to about 50,000 in South Korea. In South Korea, we kept 500,000 troops there for several years. Right. And had, and had 50,000 all the, all the way through you know, the, the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. I'm not saying it's going to take that much in Afghanistan. It's already not. And I think what's remarkable about Afghanistan, and also Janan maybe to comment on this as well, is the degree to which Afghans have clearly taken on the responsibility. Okay, that, my opening question for you, Janan, again, mm -hmm. summary statement. We'll, we'll come back to all of this in just a moment. 17 years of foreign troops on your ground. Do Afghans still want us there? Well, I think just to add to what uh, HR has just outlined in terms of common interests, which is uh, uh, defeating terrorism and making sure that uh, both Afghanistan is a peaceful country and a stable country and that it, it's not a source of threats or risks to the United States or to any other countries, is uh, also the question of common values, I would say. Uh, the United States has been a, a strategic partner to Afghanistan, uh, to a new democratic Afghanistan. And I think that's uh, extremely important that it was uh, demonstrated very vividly uh, once again just a couple of days ago by the people of Afghanistan who braved bombs and bullets and risks and went out to vote for their uh, next parliament. As we, as we shoot uh, this, so this took place just this past weekend. This past results weekend on Saturday and not Sunday. To be, not to be announced for some weeks as I recall. The results will come out I think maybe in a month's time, right. three weeks to a month's time because uh, uh, all ballot papers and the, the um, uh, biometric machines that were used have to be gathered up, uh, brought back to provincial capitals, 34 provincial capitals, and then from there to Kabul, and then linked up with the you know, central servers and databases that have been created by the electoral commissions, and then tallied up, verified, and then announced uh, to the public. But uh, it is both a question of uh, a partnership of common interests, you know, uh, looking at it from a very uh, uh, you know, concrete interests-based uh, uh, perspective, but it's also a, uh, a partnership based on uh, common values uh, right. and America's support to a democratic Afghanistan. But I must also add that um, we have had uh, uh, difficulties uh, in the past 17 years as well in the execution of the war. Uh, Stop there. I'll, I want to get to that. <laughs> no, no, I want to, do a, I want to do a summary for listeners because 17 years is a lot of ground to cover. And I don't see any way around it. I'm going, I'm going to have to set it up quickly by going through the basic phases of the war. Operation Enduring Freedom. We go in in 2001. We put special forces on the ground, small footprint on the ground, air cover, and work with Afghan forces, in particular the Northern Alliance. And the Taliban is gone in two months. Pretty remarkable, purely as a military matter, pretty remarkable accomplishment, right? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Light footprint gets the job done. Phase two, we get about 7,000 troops in Afghanistan. President Bush, George W. Bush, calls for a new Marshall Plan. And in 2004, election at, in, in Afghanistan, new Afghan constitution. But then by, f by 2005, phase three here, the Taliban begins returning to the country. By 2009, we've got NATO forces of about 32,000 and American forces of about 50,000. So we're up in the direction of 90,000 troops there. In late 2009, President Obama commits more troops. We get up to 100,000 troops. And then by 2011, President Obama's had about enough. And he starts announcing withdrawal 
timetables with the idea that we get out completely in 2014 and then negotiates with the Afghan government for it to, re to leave a small force behind. Phase four will come to, that's what President Trump is choosing to do. But the point of this is we had a quick military victory using a very light footprint. And I have to say, as a layman, you'll be able to discuss this at greater length. As a layman, what's remarkable is that the United States military in real time learned on the ground. Small group working with Afghans, calling an air cover, and they get the job done. And then the thing goes sideways for years. And we get a big force in, and now we're down to a small force. All right, now I'm trying to press a lot of ground material into a tiny amount of time here, but here's the basic question. Why can't we win? Why can't we just win HR? Well, the, the initial strategy was very successful militarily, but it was actually ran counter to the true nature of war, in that war is political. So what you're doing militarily has to be able to bridge into that sustainable political outcome. The Mujahideen era militias, who we super empowered with special forces, intelligence professionals, and air power, were able to effect essentially state capture over nascent state institutions and functions after the collapse of the Taliban regime. Of course, the Taliban had destroyed any institution we would have recognized as such anyway. Right. And so then these militias morphed into essentially organized crime networks that were affiliated with a criminal objective, but really a political objective, which was mainly to consolidate power in advance of a post-US Afghanistan. And so remember, we have not, not had a 17-year plan you know, in Afghanistan. I mean, it's an old adage, but it's true. We've had 17 one-year plans, you could say. And so we kept saying, we're leaving, we're leaving. And so that idea that we're leaving right away encouraged a short-term maximization of gains mentality among these Mujahideen groups who remembered the very destructive civil war from 92 to 96. If those conditions returned, they wanted to be in the greatest position of strength relative to the other groups. And so it really is the lack of a focus on the political nature of war that really led to many of the difficulties it experienced. But I would also say you have to recognize that in war, progress is never linear because of the continuous interaction with determined, capable, and in this case, brutal and ruthless enemies. The Taliban started regenerating in 2002, beginning of 2002, and they did so with the help of Al-Qaeda. They could not have done it without Al-Qaeda. And, and Pakistani intelligence, the, the ISI. And, and they began regenerating almost immediately and began coming back in Afghanistan. This is by so 2003, faster than I understood. Okay, much it. faster. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then what our response was- And is, we knew that at the time, we, we could see it, it in real time. time. And our response was still, hey, we're leaving, we're leaving. And so by the time of the 2006 elections, President Karzai looks over his shoulder, who has my back? Well, they're leaving. I better cut a deal with the Mujahideen era leadership, the so-called warlords, so that in exchange, in exchange for impunity and really a license to loot the state, you give me political, political fealty. You get, you get to run back. things in your, in your fiefdoms and, right. and, and I get to remain as president. And so this exacerbated <clears throat> this problem of state capture by really criminalized patronage networks and, and, and and so the Afghan state and institutions associated with it 
were being hollowed out as we were trying to build them. And so this is just one of many examples of what Janan alluded to, which is that, that you know, the, our strategy was not wise, right? And, and, and I do believe that in the past year, that's been rectified uh, by President Trump's decisions. We, there is a fundamental, fundamentally different policy and strategy in place in Afghanistan. But um, I, okay, so Janan no, is really the Jim, real expert here. here so. Here's what I want to ask you. You spoke, I, I looked, the two of you did an interview together. It's available on YouTube. Anybody can go look at it in 2012. And you spoke about the expansion of political rights, spread of education, so forth. Here's the question. You've got a population of 37 million divided into 14 or so ethnic groups. I'm an expert on this because I looked it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> Feel free to correct me if I get this wrong. And you've got the country isn't consolidated into anything like a modern state until about 1890, the 1890s under Abdur Rahman and it achieves autonomy. So we're not talking about France. We're not talking about Prussia. And we're not talking about England, countries that have been countries, some notion of a state for a thousand years. We're talking about a mountainous region that has been run by local tribal or ethnic units until, in historic terms, the day before yesterday. So HR over here is saying we've got to set up a state, we've created the wrong incentives, but we can still do it. My qu and I say this with respect, of course I do. You have to live there. But isn't he just asking too much too fast? Wouldn't it be good enough from the American point of view and wouldn't it have brought peace to your country sooner if we just cut deals with the warlords? Here's the deal. Do what you want to do. Let your country live in peace and keep the Taliban out. That would have been good enough, right? I don't think so. All right. Uh, because uh, if you look look at the history of Afghanistan, it's a much uh, older state than, uh, than, I just than going back to the 1890s. Right. Uh, the Afghan Empire, uh, going back to the 18th century, extended from New Delhi to uh, to uh, Asfahan in uh, Iran, also Central Asia. Uh, so it, it was run. And the from, capital from was Kabul. Still? Kandahar. 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 Right. And then it was shifted to Kabul. And Afghanistan in the 1960s and the 1970s was a thriving, was a thriving uh, Asian country, uh, you know, right in the heart of Asia, connecting Central Asia with South Asia and uh, China with, the, with, with West Asia. And uh, w partly with the help of uh, the American government, you know, we were undertaking transformative infrastructure and development programs in Afghanistan so there in is the a, 60s and the 50s, 60s and the 70s. So there's a living memory of there's a coherent, absolutely a stable, a coherent, state, stable state. state. There's something to get back to. This isn't a total act of invention. There's something to get back to. An, okay. a, a functioning state, a stable state, uh, you know, where people had rights and freedoms uh, based on a, on, a, a, on a very open constitution, which, is the, which became the basis of the, the existing constitution of Afghanistan. This is the 1964 constitution and it was revived in a different form in 2004, uh, in 2003 uh, in Afghanistan. So uh, it's not that, you know, we're creating something completely brand new. Uh, we, we, we had that in the, between 64 and 74, uh, we went through a, a decade of democracy, an elected parliament, and the monarchy was, um, uh, you know, uh, What was the state of the country when the Soviets invaded in 79? Oh, the country was uh, undertaking uh, five-year, very successful development uh, programs. Uh, increasing number of Afghan students were going abroad uh, for education, including to the United States, the former Soviet Union, to other countries in the region. Afghanistan's um, trade with neighboring countries was expanding rapidly. Uh, the industrial base 
was getting up uh, highways, roads. So the Soviets smashed a, a, Soviets, a more or less successful state. Well, the Soviet Union came and they smashed a, a functioning, stable state. And this is uh, something that I wanted to mention as well. When we talk about Afghanistan, we're not talking about an Afghanistan that is going through, that has gone through a 17-year war. It's a war that's been going on for at least 40 years. You could even say longer because uh, it probably started with the, with the 1974 coup by the former king's cousin, uh, which basically toppled the monarchy and then started the, the political turmoil. The instability turmoil, that the instability. Soviets exploited? Well, the, the turmoil, they, they exploited it. And then Pakistan, with the Pakistani uh, army, basically started supporting dissident Afghans with weapons and uh, money in 1974. Not okay. in uh, not in 2000 or, or 2002 or, or in the 1980s. This is a lot to fix, HR. And, so, um, so, I'd just like to make. Go ahead. No, go, go ahead. For, go, you finish, and I'll, I'll make two comments. Just then I want to get to first. I want to okay. get to President Trump. Yeah, but uh, I think two two really uh, important things happened. Two fundamental mistakes. One was that uh, that we made that that the United States made, mm -hmm. and that we probably made together. That the United States took its uh, eyes off Afghanistan in uh, 2000, starting in 2002, uh, right after the very quick military defeat of the Taliban, and started focusing on the uh, invasion of uh, Iraq. And so all the resources went to Iraq, all the planning capabilities and everything else went to Iraq, the intelligence capabilities, and Afghanistan was left to, to its own devices, number one. And two, uh, we never dealt with Pakistan. Because if it were not for the, uh, the sanctuaries and the support systems that were given to the Taliban in Pakistan, we would not have had the 17-year war. We would have had okay. a much quicker, uh, much more sustainable consensus on a peaceful Afghanistan. Uh, that, that would, Afghanistan can never be a threat to the region. It's a smaller country. Pakistan is a nuclear-armed country of 210 million people. On the other side, we have China. On the other side, we have Iran, a much bigger uh, again, with a much bigger economy, much bigger military. Uh, and then we have the Central Asian Republic. So Afghanistan can never be a threat to these countries. And forging that consensus was, uh, was, uh, was not uh, pursued uh, right. in the early days. So that political solution was ignored. And that's what we need to focus on right now. All right. We have the beginning of that. President Trump, August 2017, you're his national security advisor at the time, and he gives a big speech right. on Afghanistan. And I would like simply to quote a few passages from the speech and have you comment. Good idea in the first place. How have we done so far? President Trump, after, many meetings, after meetings over many months, I arrived at three fundamental conclusions. First, our nation must seek an honorable and enduring outcome worthy of the tremendous sacrifices that have been made. Close quote. Now, you know what a layman like me says? That sounds like the fallacy of sunk costs, that economists are said people are always doubling down on bad investments because they feel they already have so much invested. This is not a good idea. Well, actually, it's not a bad investment, and it is a good idea. And, and, and the reason is that consider what happens if you don't make that investment. Think of it as investment, but also think of it as insurance, insurance against a return of these, these murderous groups who want to kill our children and who did commit mass murder on American soil in, in 2000. It's not speculative. And, and, and they did it. It's not speculative. And also think about the psychological victory. If, for example, groups like ISIS or Al Qaeda or, 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 their, or the, their Taliban compatriots, and this is one of the myths of the Obama administration, 
is that there's this bold line between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. It's simply just not true. I mean, if you, if you uh, just one example of this is in Shorebach Farms in, down in, in Kandahar, the, the largest al-Qaeda training base ever identified in history was struck by U.S. Army Rangers and, 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 uh, and uh, Afghan uh, Special Forces. And the year here is? This is uh, 2015. And the whole area of about you know, 30 square kilometers was administered, staffed, run by the Taliban. I mean, Osama bin Laden's son is in command of a Taliban unit, you know, to, 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 to build up his reputation as a, as a successor within the Al-Qaeda organization. And so it, it's extremely important to understand the facts, you know, and, and, and I think many Americans have this impression it's been so long, therefore it's impossible. In fact, Afghanistan doesn't need to be, as you mentioned, France or Prussia. It just needs to be Afghanistan. And, and the, the vast, vast majority of Afghans don't want the Taliban. Think about what the Taliban did in the period from 96 to 2001. Afghans remember that. You know, Kabul had shrunken down to a city of 500,000. Because where did the population well, they go? Yeah. They fled mm -hmm. to, to, to Pakistan. And now it's and up Iran. to yeah. it's, it's, five million. It's five million. Fi over five million. Yeah. Over five million. Five million. And so there, there are these myths about the war. One of the myths is that, that despite this vast investment in, in blood and treasure, that nothing has been gained in Afghanistan. It's simply not true. The, the other is that, you know, that... Really, what has been gained? The, this, we, we've, we, I mean, from our point of view, yeah. we've, we've got, we haven't been hit again. That's right. Right. But beyond that, that's a kind of negative. This has not happened. What has well, happened I, that's good? Maybe, maybe I can, uh, I sure. can jump yes. in there. Yeah. But uh, I mean, Afghanistan is a transformed country right now. Uh, whether you look at the, uh, you know, the, the growth or the regeneration of uh, democratic governance, yes, with its flaws, yeah, there are difficulties and, and challenges that we've had and also setbacks. But Afghanistan is now an open society. It's uh, a country where people have the right to speak their minds. We have the, the most open the most rambunctious media sector in the entire region. Uh, and that's, it's recognized by uh, international uh, institutions that you know, assess media freedom uh, around the world. And we are very proud of that. Uh, the young generation in Afghanistan is playing an extremely important role, whether it's in governance or in the economy or in politics. The majority of candidates, for example, for parliamentary elections uh, just a few days ago were young people, uh, both as candidates and also as voters. Um, Afghanistan's economy has been regenerated. Uh, I mean, the country was a, in complete ruin uh, in 2001. And now Kabul is a city of five million. It's thriving. Uh, uh, the infrastructure is, uh, has improved uh, exponentially uh, in the country, but not just in the major cities, but throughout the country. Rural development has been a big achievement in Afghanistan. Healthcare services. In 2001, we had fewer fewer than uh, one million kids going to schools, all of them... Uh, in 2001. 2001. Uh, all of them, uh, uh, you know, uh, male uh, children. But now we have uh, around 10 million kids, probably more, going to schools, about 40% of them girls. Hundreds of thousands of uh, young people going to universities. You know, we had uh, maybe fewer than 10 universities in 2001, and there are more than 100 now throughout the country, public universities, private universities and the businesses uh, all over the place. Afghan businesses are now expanding and playing a, an, an increasingly important role even in the region, in the Gulf states and Central Asia, even in South Asia. So Afghanistan is a country that is uh, and much, much uh, more closely linked 
with the region and with the world, whether, whether it's in terms of uh, you know, uh, trade or uh, you know, diplomacy and uh, uh, all the rest. So we haven't gotten hit, but, and you've had a chance to rebuild. Yeah, and, but, yes. but, and I must uh, say this, you know, we, we have to have a different approach uh, to the oh, war. Okay, so there, you know, the military. Let me quote The military Trump approach again. will, yeah, will not get us anywhere. I'd like to push point out one other thing, though. Go ahead. You, you mentioned, you mentioned the the President Obama's decision to send more troops, but I think it's important to recognize that he gave a withdrawal timeline at the mm -hmm. same time as he sent those troops. War, as I mentioned, is an extension of politics. You have to focus on a political outcome, but war is also a contest of wills, right? Mm -hmm. And and in war, each side tries to outdo the other. If you commit forces to war and don't try to win, you put yourself at a severe disadvantage. And then also, because just war theory that we learned from Thomas Aquinas tells us that a requirement for a war to be just is to have a defined a just end, yes, right. a just end in mind. And so what we had is a broad number of years during which we were fighting a war without direction, without clearly articulated goals, objectives that could galvanize us and us, I mean, the no United States and allies. And there no was no long-term vision. And no in-state. No. And, and, and so this, this idea, this really hubristic idea, narcissistic idea that you can announce years in advance mm -hmm. exactly the number of troops you're going to have, how, how narrowly circumscribed their role. We actually said the Taliban was no longer a declared enemy. I mean, the forces that were committing mass murder against okay. Afghans Killing our soldiers and killing Afghan soldiers were not a designated enemy during these years. And again, this is, was this pipe dream of an easy out to tell the enemy, hey, we're leaving. Your criticism is bipartisan because it applies not absolutely, only to absolutely. Barack Obama, but the aimlessness applies to absolutely. George the, the, W. Bush. The whole span of that war. The, the whole span of that war. Okay. Here is, now hearing you speak, I have a feeling that as National Security Advisor, you must have written this line in yourself. President Trump, quote, we will fight to win, close quote. Yeah. That, we will yeah. fight to win. So, which, okay, now let me be the layman. First of all, you guys have to tell me what, we're, what is the end state? What is this going to look like? Tell, tell the American people what victory will look like. Two, HR, you just told me how modest our force is. How many do we need to win? Either go in to win or get the heck out. That I think is to many Americans, that's the lesson of Vietnam. Win it or get out. And then three, I'm giving you three, I'm stacking up the questions here for you guys to address. And then I'll just sit back and let you do it. Three is, wait a minute. If all we did was push them over to Pakistan and now the problem of safe haven isn't solved, it just resides someplace else, good Lord. When we were able to, when we occupied Japan for seven years after the war, there were no neighboring countries to which discontented Japanese troops could retreat. And then when we, Germany was totally defeated, there were no Nazis crossing borders threatening to re-enter. Pakistan is right there. Why haven't we dealt with Pakistan? Okay, HR. Okay. Go at so, it. Go so ahead. Uh, uh, let me take one of these one at a time. I'll, I'll say, first of all, what, what, is, what does... Winning look, look like. Yeah, what's it winning? What does winning it look again like? Is a sustainable outcome consistent with our vital interests, which means that Afghanistan is a country that is stable, that is relatively secure. It's not going to be completely secure. As again, I said, you know, we, we don't, we're not trying to. We're, our aspiration is not that Afghanistan becomes Switzerland; is that it becomes 
Afghanistan. And it denies any kind of a safe haven and support base for those who want to do us and, and all civilized people harm. I mean, in many ways, we ought to think about Afghanistan as a, as a modern day frontier between civilization and barbarism. And so that's, that's a sustainable political outcome. And in fact, I mean, I think you could say, well, what if you just say that we've won already? You know, with 11,000 troops there, with our ability to sustain that commitment with more burden sharing, you know, from allies and partners, you know, at the, at the height of the war, you already mentioned, you know, 160,000, 130,000 troops in, in, in Afghanistan, Big annual number. expenditures of about $112 billion a year. Now, 11,000 soldiers, annual expenditures of $22 billion a year, a number that could shrink because I think our European allies, others, can do more because, you know, if Afghanistan does collapse, which it's not going to, but if it did, those refugees would not come to the United States. Right. I mean, they, they, would, they would go to, to Europe uh, and, and, and elsewhere. So I, I think that we, because when America leads, others will follow and do more. And so I, I think this is already a sustainable multi-year strategy, which we didn't have before. But I'd like to ask Janan, what is your vision of what is winning? What is, that's right. What, yeah. does, what does winning look like to you know, one to thing that One thing that we lacked in the, you know, for, for several years was a, a vision uh, of the kind of Afghanistan that we want uh, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 you years from now. Okay, this is well, in Afghanistan, in general, uh, right, right. Afghanistan and also, uh, you know, um, uh, our friends in the United States. Uh, but now we have that, uh, that vision uh, clearly enunciated by President Ghani. And also it's, it's one that is supported by the people of Afghanistan. And that's an Afghanistan that is at peace with itself and that is a land bridge in the heart of Asia region for trade, for the flow of goods and people, and that is uh, uh, you know, a, a platform for regional and global cooperation on important issues of uh, you know, dealing with security, dealing with uh, you know, economic issues, dealing with... Uh, peace and e trade. I'll buy that. Peace and trade. And, uh, and, and we can achieve that, but we can achieve that if we have consistent adherence and pursuit by the U.S. administration, by the U.S. government, of a political and diplomatic approach. Not just with Afghanistan, but involving Afghanistan's neighbors and the key regional powers. Because without engaging countries like China and Russia and Turkey and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and even Iran, which is an important neighbor to Afghanistan, it will be extremely difficult to address even the security aspect of the situation in Afghanistan. But these countries I that I mentioned, every these time, countries... Every time I think you're giving me a problem that's solvable. That, that, it is solvable. That, because then you add layers of we have to get along with the Chinese, the Russians. And it's not easy. No, uh, let's come to dip them. Diplomacy Pakistan, is not, start with Pakistan. As no, you yourself said, 220 it, it, million people and they have nukes. No, but if I could. Go ahead. These countries, uh, all of them that I mentioned, they also have common interests with us in Afghanistan and even with the United States, which is defeating terrorism, because they're also afraid of the, the leakage of the, the violent extremism uh, uh, virus into their own societies, into their, their countries. China is concerned, Central Asian Republics are concerned, Russia is concerned, narcotics is a big concern for them. Uh, you know, the whole question of refugees, it's not just the European uh, countries that are concerned about this, but uh, uh, our, our uh, neighbors us? and countries in the region. Why us? Why don't we leave Afghanistan well, because the, the United, Chinese? I think the United States has, uh, has interest. I mean, if, if Central Asia is an important region, if South Asia is an important region, if the Middle East is, and West Asia in general is an important region for U.S. interests uh, on the global stage, then you have no choice. If China is important, 
Afghanistan is a next door neighbor of China as well, uh, then the United States will be very wise to uh, to have a long-term so, strategy of, of engagement with Afghanistan. You see, you yeah. Not you a military see, you strategy. See, you see my problem. So you, make, you make sense, yeah. and then it starts to slip away. That, wait a minute. George W. Bush, the, the, the rap on George W. Bush, particularly in his second inaugural, where he said, I, I've got it here somewhere. Let me find it. It is the policy of the United States to seek and support the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every nation and culture with the ultimate goal of ending tyranny in our world. We're not done until the whole world is a democracy. Yeah. That's George W. Bush. Here's Donald Trump speaking once again in, in that speech that you were involved in. Quote, we are not nation building. We are killing terrorists. Close quote. Yeah. So doggone it, HR. You, so, you, well, you lay something out that makes sense, yeah. and then it starts to get bigger, and suddenly we can't, we can't succeed in Afghanistan until we succeed everywhere, and we're right back in the same... Well, you know, what? intellectual pickle. Okay, well, I, I think there's a, a clear explanation of this by Go. looking at this broad sweep of 17 years. And during this 17-year period, really 15-year period, if you discount uh, the adjustments that, uh, that uh, President Trump made to, to really put in place for the first time a sound approach, is that in, at the beginning of these wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq, we were over-optimistic, right? I mean, we, we always debate about you know, the war in Afghanistan to a certain extent, but the debate about Iraq is always, should we have done it? Mm -hmm. I think the debate ought to be, who the hell thought it was gonna be easy? And why did they think it would be easy? Mm -hmm. And so we swung from sweeping statements like the one you quoted and over-optimism associated with those statements to defeatism, I think, under the Obama administration, in which they believed that our disengagement from these problem sets was an unmitigated good because they were intractable problems, they were futile endeavors, and so this gets to your second question you asked at the outset of this, of this part of the discussion. We see what it looks like when you disengage completely from these problem sets before you're able to consolidate gains and get to a sustainable outcome. We saw that in Iraq in, in 2011. And so Things what happened is you had the bleed over of the Syrian civil war, the rise of ISIS, and almost the collapse of the Iraqi state in a way that would have super empowered uh, this this ISIS group and so it, it, it's worth it to be able to sustain your effort to get to that outcome and and to and to define that outcome clearly you, it's clear it's clear that you're able we're able to do that and Janat has already mentioned some of the essential elements of success all of which I think are feasible there is an internal political Afghan dynamic that is very important and that's that's really helping Afghans come together around a vision for the country in which they believe their interests will be advanced and protected. But there's also an external political dynamic associated here. And this is one of the fundamental differences in the approach that President Trump took, right. which was a fundamentally different approach to the problem set of Pakistan. And, and so, uh, Janan was the ambassador there. Um, I think it was well past time for the United States to put aside these contradictions in our approach to Pakistan and not allow really Pakistan any longer to have it both ways, to, to pose as a major non-NATO ally while it aids and abets terrorist organizations and the Taliban such that they continue to destabilize our ally in Afghanistan uh, as well as kill Americans. And so, President so, Trump again, we have been paying at Pakistan billions of dollars at the same time they're housing the very terrorists that we're fighting. That will change immediately. How has it changed? He spoke a year ago. I mean, the, 
president demands results, right, and action. And so we implemented his strategy on, on South Asia. So what the other aspect of this, which mm -hmm. is important, this was a speech on a South Asia strategy yes. as, as well. And so, and you mentioned this as well, why not just leave it to China? Why not just pull out and so forth? And, and the reason is our interests are in a, in a stable Afghanistan, but they're also, we have tremendous interests in that region as well. It's a region that has tremendous promise, but it's also a region that's really fraught with tremendous danger, especially in connection with what, what Janan already mentioned, a nuclear-armed Pakistan, but also a nuclear-armed India and the enmity between those two, those two countries. China, as you know, is a sponsor of the Pakistani state. And, and I believe, and we started to mention, and I'll ask you to comment on Pakistan here, I don't believe that it's in any Pakistani's interest, whether they're in the army or in the civilian government or in the ISI, to be the next North Korea and to be completely isolated with a single state sponsor. Pakistan doesn't want that. And so Pakistan has to recognize that there are going to be consequences for its behavior if it continues to support these terrorists and, and, and uh, groups why, in the why Taliban. Why have they been playing this double game with us for so many years in the first place? Okay. Is it... Is that a, a, a religious fundamentalism? Is there an ideological component? There are actually elements within Pakistan that, go, that yeah. genuinely favor the Taliban and that are on the other side, so to speak? Well, I'm, I'm going to ask Janana to comment on this as well. And also, I'll be super succinct with this, I hope, is how <laughs> you get succinct about Pakistan's motivations. But what I, what I will say is, is that the, pa Pakistan is, is a country that was born of, of, of fe in a time of fear and has remained fearful since that time. The Pakistanis, and I don't mean to be trite about this, they see an Indian behind every tree. And, and one of the reasons why they fear uh, an Afghan state that is aligned with India is they believe that they would be encircled and therefore they would leave, leave what they would call, what they, in their arguments they call strategic depth. The other aspect of this has to do so with... So they want a weak Afghanistan. They, they, they want a weak Afghanistan. Where they, they want a say in the future of Afghanistan. What we need to say to them, you can have that say diplomatically. And you can be a lot more effective diplomatically than you are by supporting terrorists and, and, and insurgent groups. Two-thirds of the ethnic Pashtun population is in Pakistan. And so another fear is that, is that a, a, a Pashtun nationalist movement in Afghanistan would destabilize Pakistan and therefore you know, leave Pakistan with a rump state uh, as, as, as a portion of Pakistan is ceded uh, to, to a Pashtunistan of some kind. Uh, the, the, other, the, the other concern besides India and besides you know, the, a, a Pashtun nationalist movement is that this is what the ISI has done since the 1980s. It's almost like the Geico commercial. You know, when you're the ISI, you support the Taliban. It's what you do. You know, you, know, you support terrorist groups. And so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a book called The Shade of the Swords, you know, that, that essentially says that, that, you know, really the sustained effort against India and in support of these groups is the raison d'etre of the Pakistani army. And so, and so it's just very difficult for them to divest of what they've done for decades. But this is a real expert who's lived there, and I'll ask you to... No, I'll just highlight, I think, the, uh, the fact that um, the uh, Pakistani... It's not, not the whole of Pakistan that wants an unstable Afghanistan, that wants uh, an Afghanistan that is uh, in turmoil, uh, that is weak. It is the Pakistani army. And it's not even the, it's not the whole military even. It's not, it doesn't include the Air Force and the Navy who don't have any say when it comes to Pakistan's 
foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan or India or many other countries, including the United States. It's the army and the intelligence agency of Pakistan, the so-called ISI. And so if you have uh, you know, those people in charge of uh, uh, foreign policy towards Afghanistan, they will always militarize it. And everything will, will uh, look to them as a military target. And uh, uh, it, the, so the civi elected civilian government in Pakistan has had no power no authority to make decisions with regards to its relations with Afghanistan, and they want peace with Afghanistan. We know that for a fact. The, f the former prime minister, who was ousted by the military, was uh, in, in favor of uh, peace with Afghanistan and trade and close relations. And this is what why he, he was ousted in large This way. is why he was ousted, yeah. and he also wanted the same positive relations with India, and that's why he was ousted. So what we have said to the Pakistanis repeatedly is that you don't have to sponsor militant groups and terrorist groups to keep Afghanistan weak come and support peace in Afghanistan, and you will be the closest strategic and political and trade partner to Afghanistan because we are naturally, you know, we complement each other uh, because there's right. so HR, many, so again. many commonalities between the two. It just happened It, it will be a relationship you, like one made between all Canada the sense and in the United world. States. You made all the sense in the world, and then Janan starts talking, you and Janan start talking about the motivations in, Afghan in Pakistan and it goes back to 1948 and the partition with India and the... If, uh, and no, just if, like, whoa, 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 this is me. too complicated for us Americans. <laughs> well, just I mean, leave it, it to them. If, if I may, I'll, I'll just you know, bring it back to what... Uh, uh, and uh, expand a little bit on what uh, HR was just saying. And we have to give credit to this man here for, you know, expanding that, that you know, that uh, lens of, of yes. American policy towards Afghanistan and the broader region and situating Afghanistan within a larger context, which you must do because Afghanistan is impacted by the policies and positions of its neighbors. It's a landlocked country, and it's a country that is suffering from an imposed war right now with sanctuaries and safe havens outside. So you have to have a broad strategy that includes all the key regional players. And he achieved that with um, his support to President Trump's uh, revision of America's approach to Afghanistan and the South Asia strategy. Now, that has to be pursued with vigor, with patience. For how long? I suppose for for as long as it takes. But what I can tell you, what I can tell you at a sustainable level, what I can, what I can, yeah, what I can tell, what I, but what I can tell you is yeah. that it has a very strong chance of success because there is a confluence of key interests between the United States and almost all the other states in the region uh, 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 on a peaceful, stable Afghanistan that is not a source of threats to the United States or to those countries, and that is. Uh, a contributor to peace, stability, and economic development in the, in the broad region. And I say that because uh, we, we, we want to expand the, the, the Afghanistan-U.S. relationship from a purely military partnership, which is important, security partnership, which I think is important, to uh, a more comprehensive partnership where the economic element is the biggest. Where you we want have, some investment. Where we have... Well, well, Central and South Asia is the least integrated, the least integrated region, region in, in the, the world, world economy. In the and entire so, world. And you have a growing Indian economy that, is, that, that is, is thirsty for energy resources. You have tremendous energy resources in Central, in Central Asia. Asia. You have you know, this mm -hmm. idea of Afghanistan as this Central Asian roundabout, you know, and, and, that's what and the, the connector. So there, now, this is a long-term vision, right? I mean, this yeah. is not... So let me ask you, so isn't the logic of your position which again, you, every time you talk, HR, you persuade me, for a moment at least. But isn't the logic of your position a permanent American presence, just like the presence in South Korea and just like the presence in Germany? And if and it doesn't you know, have to be, it doesn't and, have to be a military presence. If that's the price, okay, maybe. 
But are the Chinese going to put up with an American military presence permanently that close to, are the Russians going to be happy about that? Will the Iranian, I mean, is that the law, is that really where it, where it comes out? This is just open-ended and we need at least a small presence there indefinitely. Well, yes. And, and it doesn't have to be 14,000. It doesn't have to be a certain number. But, but as, as Janan was alluding to as well, it's, it's not just the military engagement. It's diplomatic engagement. It's economic engagement. One of the greatest mistakes we made in Iraq is when we withdrew all of our troops. We, we lost, obviously, access and visibility to dynamics uh, in, in certain parts of the country. But we also disengaged diplomatically from Iraq. So in Iraq, as an example, a man named Iyad Alawi won the 2010 election. Mm -hmm. But the Iranians maneuvered to have that invalidated and to extend the, the prime ministership of Maliki, who then, whose then sectarian policies polarized that community. So this goes to your second question again. We learned, I think, from disengagement in Iraq in a way that's analogous to, to Afghanistan. Now, of course, it, what we want is we want Afghanistan to sustain itself. And that's what's happening. That transition is happening. The Afghan security forces are bearing the brunt of every battle, every battle. And these are extremely courageous people. One of the, one of the misunderstandings you often hear about Afghanistan as well, nobody's ever conquered Afghanistan and you know the Afghans have have defeated any power that's been there it, it misses completely the point that we're fighting alongside Afghans to help them secure their, their future country. against a brutal murderous terrorist organization that whose agenda is destroy all the girls schools start committing you know ma mass assassinations and and executions in the in the in the soccer stadiums again, right? You know, get and, rid of any kind of culture and music, and we we, and know, what their agenda, we know what their agenda is, right? And then it's, come after us, and, and then of course come after us, okay. and, and 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 any any country that would adhere to adhere to the belief that that, that, that in modernity, you know, in in in, uh, in 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 individual rights and rule of law, and so there has been unleashed in Afghanistan tremendous potential. It will be up to the Afghans. To, to determine whether okay. they can take that opportunity. But, and, but it will be up to not just us, but sustained international commitment to help the Afghans, because Afghanistan will be in need of international assistance for the foreseeable future. And I'd like to just ask, ask you to entertain one analogy quickly, which is imperfect. I'm a historian, so I'm skeptical about the use of historical analogies. But look at the prospects of South Korea in 1953, mm -hmm. a country ravaged by Decades of war. Close to starvation. Brutal occupation. Right. No natural resources. I mean, the country was denuded of any kind of uh, trees or, or foliage. Um, an illiterate population, a corrupt government, and a hostile neighbor that continued to try to destabilize the South. I mean, in the period 1966 to 69 in Korea, we took more casualties there along the DMZ than we did this year in Afghanistan, for example. So, so I, I think... Then, then, then compare that, that to the South Korea today, right, which is an extraordinarily successful country, a country that has been a, an engine of, of economic growth and trade and development in Northeast Asia and, and around the world. And so there are no short-term solutions to long-term problems. Right? <laughs> the, the key is how do we sustain a commitment? at a level that, that, that is acceptable to the American public in our okay. democracy. You know, if I can just build on what uh, HR was just saying. Briefly. Briefly. Know. Yes, go Briefly. ahead. Because I think this is very important. I think it is possible for us to forge uh, a peace settlement 
with the Afghan Taliban. Uh, the Afghan people will never allow a return to 1996 or to, 90, or, or to 2001 prior to the collapse of the Taliban regime because the country has moved, you know, uh, forward uh, from, from that past. But it is possible to reach a political settlement with the Taliban so that they become part of the constitutional order in Afghanistan, so that they uh, do not pose any threats to the achievements of the Afghan people, so, so that they, so that Afghanistan does not is not a source of threats to uh, to the United States or to uh, uh, our neighbors, and the signals that we are getting from the Taliban now, from their senior leadership, not all of them, but at least from the senior leadership, is that they are prepared for a deal with uh, the Afghan government, with the United States, and I think that is something that has to be. Uh, pursued single-mindedly again just in concert. You talking about these people as barbarians. Yes, and now yeah, your friend but, Janan but, but is but saying they'll do no, it. There are, there are, there are, there are, there are, there are, there are yeah. irre irreconcilable elements right, yeah. that are that are bent on uh, fighting to the end. So I'm not saying that 100% uh, of uh, of the uh, anti-government uh, milit you know, militant forces and insurgent forces will come and reconcile and become part of a peaceful order. There will always be segments and pockets of, uh, of those anti-government forces that will die to the end. And, you know, they, 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 they have to be opposed militarily, but by the Afghan government, the Afghan security, national security and defense forces. But I believe that the majority of the Taliban leadership and the majority of their, of their fighters who are hired guns, you know, who, who have picked up a gun because they're too poor. I mean, they, they, they get paid to, to go and carry out attacks, that they can be reintegrated into, or integrated into the constitutional order and that can only be done through the pursuit of a political diplomatic approach, which uh, is out, has been outlined by uh, uh, President Trump with support from HR, and uh, which uh, requires a lot of hard work. And now we have a special envoy for uh, Afghanistan Re uh, reconciliation appointed by President Trump. And uh, I believe that if, uh, if, if he and his team, if they go about this, uh, this job with dedication and diligence He's and hard work, impressive. Mm -hmm. You know the, that that we can achieve we can achieve reconciliation and peace in Afghanistan and, in the next in the next couple of years. And the one quick point is what John is saying is these groups are not monolithic or homogeneous. They're not. And under the previous administration, there was really this strange effort to say to to bifurcate and to to, to separate what we're doing diplomatically from what we're doing militarily. I think one of the most significant differences in the South Asia strategy was the integration of what we're doing militarily with what we're doing. Diplomatically, if you tell now, in this if, right, if you in this administration, if you tell the Taliban, "Hey, we'd like to negotiate a settlement with you," and, and we're leaving, by the way, how how does that work? It mm -hmm. doesn't doesn't work. So, but if you say we're we are committed to achieving a sustainable income uh, outcome consistent with our interests, then what you're doing is encouraging elements of the Taliban to conclude that they can only effectively advance their interests through some sort of participation in a political process. We're not going home. That's we can talk or we can fight. That's it's a fund right. Got it. And to marshal okay. to marshal the to, to basically uh, marshal the region in support of that strategy. Right. Because right. the region can help us put the necessary pressure on Pakistan to end its support to the Taliban and one, shut down the sanctuaries. One last question. and support peace. One last question for each of you. In the elections that took place this past weekend, there were 27 people killed, 100 were wounded. More, more, yeah, more than More 27, now? Yeah. Close to 50. All right, and yeah. in Kabul, unfortunately, there are still suicide attacks taking place. Imagine that you had the chance to talk to some 19-year-old Taliban kid just before he put on the suicide vest, and you had just a moment to tell him why he should leave the Taliban 
and join the new Afghanistan? What would you say? Well, that uh, a 19-year-old is told, the Taliban, uh, would-be suicide bomber is told that, uh, you know, you put on the suicide vest, go and uh, blow yourself up because you will be serving the cause of God. You will be fighting anti-Islam forces. You'll be fighting a, you know, puppet, uh, a puppet regime. And I would tell him that that's absolutely not true, that Afghanistan is an Islamic republic. Its constitution is based on the based on the, the tenets of the holy religion of Islam, of, uh, of the Qur'an, that it's 100% consistent with Islamic Sharia law, uh, which allows for equal rights for men and women, uh, you know, the participation of women in public life, their education, and uh, democratic governance. And that uh, you know, he, you know, he has been brainwashed and that uh, his future is in a peaceful, stable, uh, open Afghanistan, and that he should uh, choose that path uh, uh, you know, instead of uh, ending his life and also the life, the lives of many others. Okay, HR, you have, <clears throat> you're not only the warrior scholar with an important book to your credit, you also have a reputation for caring a lot about the kids in boots. You had that famous tank battle that you commanded where you destroyed, what, more than five dozen Iraqi tanks and took not a single casualty in your own unit. Okay. You've got some 19-year-old American kid who's just found out he's going to be deployed to Afghanistan. And he's thinking, but he's not going to say it to your face. You know he's thinking, General, what the heck are we doing over there? You know, that's not what he's thinking. It's not? <laughs> no. No. And so what, what we owe our soldiers, right? I mean, soldiers don't want to be viewed as, as victims, right? Soldiers don't want to be pitied. What soldiers deserve is the ability to understand how the risks that they take and the sacrifices they may be called on to make are contributing to an outcome worthy of those risks and worthy of those sacrifices. That is one of the reasons why, you know, going to war without a real strategy to achieve that sustainable outcome is not only unwise, but is also, I think, unethical in terms of the responsibilities for those soldiers. I think there were broad periods of time both in Iraq and in Afghanistan, where soldiers were unable to really meet that test, that true test of whether or not you have a sound strategy. I believe in Afghanistan, they can now. In one of the meetings that we arranged with President Trump, with four young soldiers, uh, for, so that he mm. could gain our their soldiers. perspective, our soldiers, uh, and, and uh, this is in the Roosevelt Room in, in, the, in the West Wing. And, uh, and he said, you know, do you wanna be there? Everyone of them said, yes, Mr. President, we want to be there. He said, why? He said, we want to be there because I want to make sure that my son or my grandson doesn't have to go back and fight another war in Afghanistan. And so really what is important to understand, I think, what are the risks and what are the costs of action or sustained commitment? But to balance that against what are the risks and the costs of inaction? And so I believe that's what convinced the president. I mean, you know, it wasn't my job or anybody's job to, to advocate for our position on this. What the president demanded when he made this decision is multiple options. And he carefully weighed the advantages and disadvantages of each of those options, including what you might call a withdrawal option, which was really the policy of the Obama administration was withdrawal. And so I think that, I think that, uh, the president made a, a courageous and right decision on the South Asia strategy. And I believe, as Janan has said today, that we have a very strong chance for success. And in fact, 
may have already succeeded, depending on how you describe what ultimately we, we have to endeavor to achieve there. Ambassador Janan Musazai, General HR McMaster, thank you. Thank you. Thank Thanks you very much. I'm Peter Robinson for Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>